Mrs May would not have got an applause like that, <laughs> even, even before the reshuffle. Especially afterwards. Oh my gosh. Anyway, uh, good evening everybody. Uh, Happy New Year. Welcome to this event tonight, which at the moment doesn't have a name, but might get one in a while. Um, my name is Mick Cox. I'm director of uh, LSE ideas, and I'm called Emeritus Professor, which means I'm dead. Um, or maybe not. I'm undead, anyway. Uh, I joined the LSE uh, in 2002 and 2003, and our speaker tonight uh, joined a few years earlier in 1998. Uh, then from the Nobel, I think, wasn't it? That's from right. the Nobel Institute over in Oslo, where I had also been for a period. Uh, I stayed, and look what happened to me. And he, he left and went to Harvard, and look what happened to him. I'll, I'll let you draw your own conclusions. But I, I he's got Trump, and we've got Brexit. So I'll, I'll let you make a decision and on I that. I put on more weight than he did. Uh, well, I, thank you very much, John. It's because I'm wearing black. You know, it's it's a new it's a new colour. Uh, um, many things have united Arnie Westad and myself over many years. One is an unfortunate support for a North London football team, which is not called Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, I'll let you guess. Um, secondly, the Nobel Institute in Oslo, that wonderful institution created with dynamite money by Mr. Nobel to try and keep Norway in the empire, I think. Uh, I, Arnie was there for many years, and I, I was privileged enough to be there as a visiting professor in the early part of the century. We were both uh, co-founders of a Cold War Studies Center, which was over in a building you can't see any longer. There's a hole over there at the moment, which I, it is rumored will one day become a building. That was the old East Building, and we had two or three little rooms over there. We one or two people who are in the audience tonight, including Tia Franjulovic and many, many others who have been so, so great for, for us. We then morphed this into... Uh, a thing called ideas. It doesn't stand for anything, after all. But I think you, you made it up, or I made it up in your garden in Cambridge. I can't remember which. I think that's for yeah. I think yeah, maybe, yeah. You had had a lot of wine, and I, I was stone cold sober for once, week. yes. But anyway, but anyway, we created uh, ideas out of the Cold War Study Center in 2004. And we were then both, uh, as I said, uh, co-directors of that. And one of the things we did and we tried to do, and it was a project, it wasn't just an organizational move on our part to corner all the LSE funds, which we never got very much of, by the way. Um, but it was actually to have, it was a project about the Cold War. And to think about not only what was the Cold War about, why did it start, who started it, the new archival work on the Cold War, of which Arnie was very much involved over in Oslo, but also to think about how the Cold War itself impacted on the world after 1989 and then after the end of the USSR in 1991. Whether or not we predicted or not is another question, but what we were thinking about when we set it up was really an intellectual project to think through on those key questions about how the, the present and future and indeed relate to the past. It was kind of making history actual, the present as history, as was once put by an old Marxist called Paul Sweezy. Maybe one or two of you have heard of him, but anyway. So that's what we did, and that's what we continue to do, both through the Cold War Studies Center and then widening the debate out to, 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 uh, 
to LSE ideas. As I say, Arnie, Arnie, Arnie's moved on westwards, and, and, and I moved southwestwards to uh, Clapham, which is not quite Harvard, I suppose. But anyway, there you go. Anyway, tonight we're going to do it in the form not of a lecture, but uh, I'm going to ask Arnie to make a few reflections on the book, of which I have a copy here, selling like hot cakes, I should say cold cakes, uh, because it's about the Cold War. That wasn't a very good joke, but you are allowed to laugh. Uh, and then what, I'm just going to give about 10, 15 minutes what's in the book, what's original about the book, what he thinks the book says. Maybe he could tell me what a world history means, <laughs> as opposed to an international, a global, or a comparative history, but it's called... Uh, a, a, a world history. And Arnie's going to speak for about 10, 15 minutes. That probably means 25, uh, as you know. And then when we've done that, I'm going to interrogate him, ask him some extraordinarily difficult questions, and ask him if I can get some of the royalties from the book for organizing <laughs> this event tonight with the Ideas people. I'd also like to thank all the Ideas people for all the hard work they've done. And so what I'm going to do to you, Arnie, is first say, welcome back to the LSE. Uh, you were here last year. You're no doubt going to be here uh, next year and many years to come. As always, it's great to welcome you back. You welcomed him as we walked in. I wonder if we could welcome him today to reflect on his book, The Cold War, A World History. Arnie Westad, back at the LSE. Well, as I say, it's great to be back. Uh, it, it couldn't be otherwise. I have a very, very strong connection to this institution, as Mick mentioned, going back quite a few years. Even, even more years than what Mick's connection to the institution goes back, which is remarkable because he seems to be around here forever. <laughs> um, I'm, um, I, I miss the LSE very often, where I am now. Harvard is a fine institution, but in terms of the engagement that is there with current affairs, in terms of the issues that we put under debate, it doesn't steal a march on the LSE in any way. So, for those of us who are lucky enough to have had or have today uh, an affiliation with this great institution, I think we should congratulate ourselves upon that. It's, uh, it is really, really good to be back. It's good to see old friends again. Good to see Mick. Good to see a lot of the people who helped us build first the Cold War Study Center and then LSE Ideas, many of whom are, are in, the, in the audience today. And the reason why I wrote this book, so I won't go on for 25 minutes, I go on for almost exactly 10, right, to, to get this started. Um, the reason why I wrote this book was first and foremost because I wanted to go back to what was the starting point from uh, the early 2000s when Mick and I and a number of others started to think about what the Cold War was in terms of global international affairs. So what was the significance of it, not just in terms of history, but also in terms of contemporaneity? How did the Cold War create the world that we live in today? That's a starting point for the book. And having taught this topic at the LSE for quite a number of years helped me to put it together. So this is very much an LSE book. And when you buy the book afterwards, which you can do outside, uh, you will see how much of an LSE book it is not just in terms of how it is put together, but also in terms of the kinds of issues that I'm preoccupied in dealing with. This is very much the present in the light of the past. So the three things that are most important to me in this book, and then we will open up for the discussion, um, three things that, are, that stand out. First and foremost, you cannot understand how the contemporary world came into being without figuring out what the Cold War left us. 
And the Cold War left us with many things. It left us with the privileging of hard power, of conflict or confrontation, of the use of military force, think Iraq, Afghanistan, and, and elsewhere, over the abilities that people had, the nations had, and states had to work together. Now, if you think about this historically, it's not only the Cold War that has done this. I mean, a number of international systems have privileged the use of force. But what was striking with the Cold War was how systemic it was on these kinds of issues. So that's, in a way, one of the most clear, most decisive negative outcomes uh, of the Cold War. The second point that is important to me is in terms of understanding where this very particular and peculiar international system came from. So it came out of a world that had really gone to pieces. So if you were born in the early 1890s, right, and you grew up almost anywhere in the world, that was not a good time to grow up. Things were really, really difficult. Two world wars, a global de depression, the battles against colonialism and imperialism in many parts of the world, this wasn't easy, right? So the Cold War as an international system, the way it came together after the end of the Second World War, was put in place by a whole set of developments that we have to understand that really starts, I argue in this book, in the late 19th century. That if we think about it just as a constellation of nations and alliances after 1945, we only get a tiny little part of this. We don't understand why so many people in so many parts of the world took it so seriously. Not just that they were willing to die for it, but they were willing to kill off an enormous number of other people through the use of weapons of mass destruction in order to create the kind of future that they wanted to see. And I argue in the book that many of these kinds of traits, many of these kinds of, of, of approaches to global affairs are with us still. They are, they are still, still around. And then the final point is, and this is the reason, the answer to Mick's question of what it, why this is called a world history, is that you can only understand the Cold War as an ideological struggle between capitalism and socialism in its various forms by understanding it within a broader framework of world history. So I'm not trying to argue in this book that the Cold War, this ideological conflict, or the constellation of states that were developed after the middle part of the 20th century was the only game in town. It wasn't the only thing that happened during this long period that I'm trying to deal with in, in this book. It was significant, but it didn't determine everything. So what I try to do in the book is not to exaggerate the importance of the Cold War, to subsume everything else that happened in the 20th century under it. It is quite the opposite. It is trying to understand it in terms of how it impacted and was impacted by other events that were taking place. So the global wars of the early part of the 20th century, the massive and, in my view, systemic crisis of capitalism that came out of the late 1920s and, and, and 1930s, the changes that took place after the Second World War with decolonization, with the creation of new forms of cooperation in Europe, which became, became the EU, and maybe first and foremost, because it's close to my heart in terms of what I'm interested in, the rise of China and of East Asia as economic superpowers on a global scale. This massive shift that we've been seeing over the last 25, 30 years of wealth and power from West to East. 
All of that happened. Much of it would have happened without the Cold War. But all of it impacted the Cold War, and the ideological struggle of the Cold War impacted these kinds of events. I mean, think about China today. China would have been a very different kind of country if it hadn't been for the global conflict between socialism and capitalism. So in that sense, and this is really all I want to say as a starter today, Mick, you know, the Cold War is still with us, but you know, not in the forms that we expect, the kind of division of the world, what came out of the kind of thinking that I had and you had when we grew up, mm. of, of massive superpowers confronting each other with, with, with nuclear weapons along an ideological divide, but in terms of the kinds of measures, the kinds of ideas, the kinds of practices that came out of that period. Now, I, for one, wish that that were not the case, right? That we would have been able in the 1990s and early 2000s to transcend the Cold War. But it seems to me that we haven't, that much of that is still with us. And so th those three reasons were the, were the main preoccupations I had in, in, in writing this book. And, and that's what I hope we can discuss today. Okay, Anna, that's a great, that's a great opener. Let me then, let's start, at the, I'm not, we're not going to go through every aspect of the Cold War, even though I was born in 1947. Uh, in terms of the origins, uh, I grew up in the 60s in the great debate which was going on then about the origins of the Cold War. And as you, you, you yourself remember, Arnie, although you're slightly younger than me, there was a huge debate then going on in the United States led by people like William Appleman Williams and the so-called Wisconsin School, which challenged what we call the dominant orthodox view that for whatever set of reasons, the Soviet Union was responsible for the Cold War. And then, of course, there was a strike back by those who didn't like that argument. They preferred the argument that the, the, the Soviet Union had been responsible. Do you think that is a debate we should still be having about responsibility? Or do you think that the origins of the Cold War simply lay in the structure of the international system after World War II, that it was inevitable? Or do you think the stronger of the two sides, namely the United States, for some reason, I would argue anyway, bears at least to some degree more responsibility than less? This isn't to apologize for Stalinism or for what Stalin did in Eastern Europe, but maybe the United States had more options and the Soviet Union had fewer. What would you say to that? No, on the latter point, I think you're entirely right, and I argued that in the book. Mm. I mean, not because one should in any way minimize the crimes. Sure that Stalinism in the Soviet Union and after the war, the Soviet occupation of Eastern Europe led to. But simply because it doesn't seem to me, and this is where I do agree with William Appleman Williams and a number of other people who wrote about this 30, almost 40 years ago, that the Cold War as an international system that would dominate the world for almost 50 years was something that was preordained. Mm. You know, I don't think there was anything that was given about it. And I think that if more attempts had been made by by far the most powerful constellation of countries on Earth, which would be uh, the United States and its, its Western European allies, to try to move away from the kind of systemic pattern of confrontation, mm. we might have been able to avoid it. Mm. Mm. So... You know, there is nothing, with this as with most cases in history, there is nothing that is given. History consists of a set of human value judgments, policies, and their implementation. So, you know, since we already quoted one Marxist today, we could as quote, well quote Marx himself, saying that, you know, people make their own history, but not under circumstances of their own choosing. And I think that's entirely true for the late 1940s as well. Okay, let me then follow back 
on the question of the lessons of history, which you kind of hinted at, although you didn't use the word lessons, I think, to what degree do you think, therefore, the lessons of the 1930s, and this is the old Munich analogy, you can't appease dictators. If you try to appease dictators, look what, look what happened to Chamberlain, at least to his reputation. Uh, and, and the whole word appeasement became you know, a, a politically non-word. Uh, and those lessons of the 30s, how much do you think they drove American thinking about the, the Soviet Union and the international system? Because you know, I think it did an enormous amount of damage uh, because of the wrong lessons drawn from making it Nazi Germany equate to, to Soviet Russia. What do you think about that? Well, I think that's entirely right. I mean, I think, so this is something that is incredibly important for us today as well because so many of the historical lessons, in quotation marks, mm. I would put them, as our political leaders go by today, are <laughs> supposed to have been learned from the Cold War. I mean, not least in the country where I live at the moment, in the United States of America. That's very, very clear. I mean, there is this idea that the Cold War ended in one particular way, in an American victory, that came out of what was seen as the confrontational policy of Ronald Reagan towards the Soviet Union. Well, in reality, of course, as most people who will have read my book will understand, uh, <laughs> it, it came out of a set of negotiations. It was a negotiated piece. It was a negotiated ending, in which Ronald Reagan actually played a very, very important role but not as the ultimate hardliner, as is often produced, uh, often reproduced, but as someone who was willing to reach out to the Soviet Union when the time was right in order to get a peaceful settlement of the Cold War. Now, I'm very preoccupied with the issue of what current policymakers can take from history. So mm -hmm. I teach a course at Harvard dealing with this, uh, with deals with global power shifts. Actually, the inspiration for that course, to a very <laughs> high extent, came from Mick and stuff that we were doing together here at LSE and at, mm. at Peking University Beijing, yeah. as well. Mm. Um, where we try to look at other cases in history, going back to the fourth century BC, <laughs> in which power has shifted very dramatically and very, very quickly, right? So I believe very firmly that whoever makes policy today and will make it in the future ought to be aware of how these historical shifts have taken place. Mm. Mm. But at the same time, I think there are not just one, but multiple, multiplicity of lessons that can be drawn from that historical understanding. So I want young people today who want to move into politics or into diplomacy or into the leading positions in business to think about the past, not just in terms of one lesson that could come out of it, but to think about what could have been done differently. Mm. So how could it have produced a better result? And this, I think, is sometimes where analogies of a very narrow kind constrain us rather than open up. Mm. And I think appeasement in Munich is actually one of those. Mm. Let me then take you through the question of how did we get through it then? Mm. Because uh, I, as I, I said earlier on, I was born in 1947, so you don't need to be a mathematician to guess my age. Um, I can remember one crisis after. I can even remember the Suez Crisis. Uh, I can certainly remember the Cuban Missile Crisis of October 1962, when at the young age of 15, I thought I was about to die. Uh, we negotiated that, it seems, because we had an intelligent president in the White House who didn't listen to his advisors, uh, it seems, at least some of them. Uh, we then got through another crisis in the early 80s, whether it was so much of a crisis with Ronald Reagan and the whole nuclear scare then. Why do you think we managed 
to last mm. because there were quite a lot of people out there either in the peace movement, CND, or European nuclear disarmament movement, or others who thought the inevitable outcome mm. of, of this deep ideological power struggle between mm. these two blocks would inevitably lead to finally to Armageddon. Or is it the case, and, and I'll put you on the spot, is it the case that nuclear weapons just kept the peace? You know, in spite of what CND and the campaign said and the anti-nuclear people said, and by the way, the first professor of international relations here, Philip Nolbaker, said about mm. disarmament, in the end, mm. what did it, as Mrs. T, Mrs. Thatcher would have said, well, we had nukes and that, and that kept the peace. And that is why we had... So the paradox of the Cold War is it was, it was nuclear Armageddon at a, at a switch, but nonetheless, it was the nuclear weapons which prevented. What, what's your view on that? So I think the, the best way of answering your question is, first and foremost, we were very, very lucky. <laughs> uh, there were some occasions, and the Cuban Missile Crisis is, is probably the most important of yeah. them, but it's certainly not the only one, where Cold War on a strategic level could have broken out by mistake. Mm -hmm. uh, it, could have been, it could have broken out because of misperceptions. It could have broken out because of faulty intelligence. I mean, it could have broken out because of political misperceptions at what was happening within the leadership on the other side. Mm. I mean, my, my friend and colleague Gordon Barris, who's in the audience today, has written a whole book about this, mm. about uh, you know, how that imaging of the enemy actually uh, took place during the Cold War. And the more I've looked at this, the more scary the whole period mm. seems to me to be. So this idea, which is a very simplistic idea, that nuclear weapons kept the peace for that whole period, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's nothing to go by in terms of understanding the period as a whole. Now, what nuclear weapons did do, as all weapons of mass, destructions, of mass destruction uh, do, is, of course, to focus the mind. I mean, you know, if you have weapons of this kind at your disposal, in a number of cases, most cases, you are more careful with what kind of steps that you take towards the other side. So I think those of the more traditional or orthodox bent who's mm. written about this mm. do have a point about it. John Gaddis called it famously the long peace. Now, I don't believe in a long peace because I don't see the Cold War as a peace at all. What I like to call it, like to call it in my lectures as a student here, is the long postponement. <laughs> so... Nuclear weapons, among other aspects of interaction among the great powers during the Cold War, concentrated the minds for long enough for there not to be a spillover effect of the kind of uh, origins of the First World War that many of you will have studied that leads through a set of local events to regional events to global events that lead to cataclysmic war. So I do think there is a point about nuclear mm. weapons mm. in the sense that that concentrated the minds of policymakers. But of course, the potential outcome of accidental conflict or mm. the kind of conflict that could come through through misperceptions was vastly higher than anything that has gone before. Let me just make one more point about that, Mick, because Please, it's important in terms of understanding this link that I talked about to begin with in terms of people's age and what they come out of, right? and how they created the Cold War as an international system. So if you've gone through hell as a young woman or a young man, if you've gone through a really difficult period, right, for mainly for reasons not of your own making, then the thinking that you have, the kind of perception you have about how the stakes are in terms of international affairs, how high these are, how intense they are, 
uh, is something that is really, really significant, mm, right? Mm. You are willing to take risks that you probably otherwise would not have done if you think that on your ideology or on your set of ideas depends the future on the world, that we're not going back there to 1914 or to 1929 or to 1939, right? Mm. So historical analogies do not just work through the simple kind of, oh, we've heard about Munich, or we've heard about Vietnam kind of similes. It works perhaps more efficiently and, and more strikingly in terms of people's lived experience. And you have to take that seriously. So that's what I'm trying to do in the book as well. I'm not sort of writing people off because they are making decisions different from how I think I would have made them. I try to understand where these people come from and mm. why this was so important to them that they were willing to take such risks. In terms of, uh, we'll talk about winners later on and whether you think the West won, and, and if indeed, why it won, and why we failed to predict that it would win. <laughs> but let me talk about maybe the two parts of the, of the world order, the international order, the international system, where you might say the losers, uh, that certain peoples in the world paid a very high price for the for the Cold War. One that you've written about is, of course, the Third World, and I'd like you to reflect on that a bit more. And this is where I think the whole idea of a long peace is morally as well as strategically deficient, <laughs> simply because it ignores the fact that 25 million people died in the Cold War through various forms of intervention, and not just American ones either, by the way, as we well know. Look at Afghanistan. I think also the other, the other great victims, if I might put it bluntly, and, uh, were, were the peoples of Eastern Europe. In, in a way, nobody in the West, uh, strategic decision makers, whether in the United States or, uh, or, uh, or Britain or wherever, you know, were prepared to contemplate liberation of Eastern Europe. And in a way, I, 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 I kind of wrote about this many years ago, as you know, that there was a kind of a, a, a central hypocrisy at the, the heart of the system in, in Europe, that we kind of, you know, we, we, we shed crocodile tears for these poor peoples of Hungary, Czechoslovakia and Poland. We kind of applauded Solidarność and whatever, like Valencia. We kind of said, well done, Hungary. You know, poor East Germans got to live in that bloody boring place over there called East Germany. But in essence, in essence, when you come actually to every single situation, nobody really was prepared to contemplate doing yeah. serious things about it as opposed to drawing propaganda gains for the West about it. Now, that may be too cynical, but when you, when you come to certain events, as you know, Arnie, when, the, when the war was put up in 61. I mean, you know, Kennedy didn't run forward to do something about it. Yeah. You know, you look at, you look at what happened in, in the 70s in Poland. So let's take those two together. Let's start maybe with the third world and then move on to the, uh, what I think of the other kind but of... Let me do it in the opposite, okay. in the opposite direction. Sure, so, sure. I mean, on, on, on Europe, and this is something I was thinking about a great deal as I wrote this book, because my background is not in European history or European international affairs. And I, I had to learn a great deal in order to write the part in the book that deals with Europe, which is, quite, which is quite a significant part of the book, as it had to be for anyone writing mm. about the Cold War, right? So the division of Europe that took place gradually in the 1940s and lasted up to the late 1980s, I see first and foremost as a European problem, right? I think the United States and the Soviet Union had a very significant impact on why Europe was divided in the late 1940s. We can go into that later on if you like. But what is really striking, and here I'm thinking again in terms of what we pick up from this today, was how easily 
Europeans themselves came to live with mm. a divided continent. Of course. And there are some real implications, I think, for thinking about this today, right? It was far too easy for West Europeans to write Eastern Europe off as a part of the continent that hadn't really belonged to the center of Europe, that had never really interacted in a meaningful way with the major states in, in, in Western Europe. Even though I think a lot of people knew, certainly in the 50s and 60s, in their hearts of hearts, that this was basically untrue, right? That, 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 that Budapest, or for that matter, Vilnius, are European cities that are as European as <laughs> Dublin or Oslo, right? right? Mm. But it's very easy to come to accept a political division that comes out of reasons which can then be reconnected up to your own sense of security, which is what many West Europeans, not all of us, but many West Europeans embraced during the Cold War because of the US-West European alliance. So beware of that. I mean, think about that again in terms of the things that are happening within Europe today. Uh, we had a wonderful opportunity, which I hope we will be able to discuss later on, Mick, in really making Europe whole after the end of the Cold War. And it seems to me that we failed in many ways in, 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 in doing so. So secondly, with regard to the Third World or the Third World Movement or the Global South or the decolonized the, 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 the uh, countries, I mean, to me, and this stood out in the work I've done before, but it stands out even more clearly in, in this book. Uh, some of the worst crimes, uh, some of the most important setbacks in terms of human development that took place during the Cold War, many of which are still with us today, happened in the post-colonial parts of the world. They didn't only happen because the Cold War was a system of imposition, right? that the Cold War came from the outside and descended on countries like Angola or Vietnam or mm. Ethiopia or Nicaragua or, or Chile from the outside. It was also important because a number of people in these various countries, as in Western Europe or Eastern Europe, as I mm. talked about before, mm. Mm. bought into the kind of dichotomies, the kind of dichotomy form of thinking that the Cold War produced. Right? That there had to be one side that was good and one side that was terrible. And that there, it wasn't possible to get any kind of meeting between those two. And those kinds of dichotomies, again, I think is something that is with us today to a very, very high extent. Mm. It, and it is very important to underline that not all of this was about disasters that were, were conjured up in Washington or in Moscow. In some countries, much of this happened because of people's own buying into beliefs that really weren't quite suited for the kind of social circumstances under which they lived. Again, another lesson, I think, from the Cold War. In this case, I use the term lesson deliberately. One has to think about ideas and how far they are able to bring us, particularly coming out of disasters like the early 20th century, with a great deal of imagination and a great deal of belief. I understand that. But at the same time, one has to be able to think through the price that one is willing to pay to create these kind of ideal new societies. Mm -hmm. And that's the same thing, I think, if you, if you live in Southern Africa in the, in, in the 1980s, or for that matter, you know, if you, if you live in, in, in Northern Ireland. Mm -hmm. I think on the third world, I think the thing I would also stress on, I think it's definitely in your book, but 
you know, for, for many people in the third world coming out of underdevelopment and colonialism and, and the rest and racism and imperialism, for many people in the West, the Cold War is a strategic standoff between the United States and the, and, 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 and the USSR. For many people living in the third world, coming out of colonialism and all the things I just mentioned, the Cold War wasn't about that. It was about liberation. Yep. Now, what we call the Cold War, they saw as liberation, whether it the Indian form of it or whether it was the revolutionary form in Vietnam or whether it's what we saw in Guatemala, El Salvador, or what we later saw in Angola, Mozambique, and indeed South Africa. I mean, after all, you can't understand the African National Congress without its close, very intimate connection with the South African Communist Party, led by a Joe Slovo, you know, and Slovo, by the way, is a Russian name, as I'm sure, word, as I'm sure you know. And so that, that, that deep affiliation with, with the Soviet model of socialism. Yeah. And I think, you know, I mean, many revolutionaries and those who wanted to change the world, they may not have all been CP, they may not have all been Stalinist, uh, many of them, like uh, Fidel in, in Cuba, may indeed want to have a different model, but in a way they all do in the end have to come back and seeing the Soviet Union not as a form of oppression, not as totalitarianism, but as support for revolution, whether it's in Angola, whether it's in Mosul. And I think we've got to get that perspective right to kind of get a fuller, if you like, non-Western feeling and understanding of what for, meant for many people not who come to not who live in London or, no, or Washington. I, I think that's entirely true, Mick. I, I, I think I don't think it's true just for the the, the post-colonial world and for anti-colonial movements in the third world. I think it's true on a global scale. I mean, if you think mm. about Europe in the early part of the 20th century, I mean, no surprise that a lot of people who, under other circumstances, I think would have chosen very differently embraced the Soviet model of socialism mm -hmm. because it seemed to bring a future that was equitable, mm -hmm. that was socially stable, that moved away from the kind of recurrent crisis and war that capitalism seemed to have produced. I mean, this is very, very important. I mean, one of the biggest problems I find in teaching uh, global international history of the 20th century today to very young people at Harvard who mm. have no experience of anything that is connected to the Cold War and its end, or indeed a period that came immediately after it, is in a way to reconstitute, and I use this in a broad sense, mm. the Soviet Union as a global power. And there is a tendency, and this is more pronounced in the United States than what it is here, mm. to think about the Soviet Union as a kind of reflection of the United States with a, with, 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 with a negative uh, uh, setting, you know, uh, that happened to be there for part of the 20th century as a kind of anti-United States. And that's far too simple in order to grasp the significance of the Soviet Union and of Soviet-style socialism on a global scale. The Soviet Union was for real. It acted for its own reasons. It wasn't just a kind of, uh, uh, you know, sideshow in terms of what the Americans were up to on a, on a global scale. Mm -hmm. Now, it's hard to explain this, because in order to do it, you have to have two thoughts in your head at the same time. Hmm. The 20th century is very much about the ascendance of the United States on a global scale. Hmm. And the Cold War is part of that pattern. And I think anyone who's looked at the 20th century in a broad sense will see that as one of the leitmotifs that are taking place. Hmm. But that's not the same thing as saying that the Soviet Union and its allies, did not have their autonomy in terms of what they wanted to do, for good, that, for good and bad, right? 
So in South Africa, in Southern Africa overall, mm -hmm. I would say, it happened to be mainly for the good. Mm -hmm. In other parts of the world, Eastern Europe, mm -hmm. a, a number, of, number of countries on a global scale, it was for the bad, right? Mm -hmm. But it wasn't just a sheer reflection of what was happening in US foreign policy. Mm -hmm. So I do think it's important, and this is something that irritates me enormously, both with the American left and the American right, mm -hmm. is that everything seems to be about the United States. <laughs> and there is nothing Surely that goes not. on in the world Surely not. Surely that is not. not connected to some kind of wonderful aspect or deficiency of, of U.S. foreign policy. And that's another thing, to I, I think, to pick up from the Cold War. It was like that for a very long time. That's not just something that has happened today. But this sense that everything is about the actions or inactions of the United States, which not just true for Americans. I mean, it's sometimes things that are taken over by the wonderful students that I taught at LSE mm, as well. Mm, mm. It's mainly wrong. I think your point, I mean, I, I, we don't need to debate it, but I think it's important for understanding the, what I call the, the texture of the Cold War, maybe even get away from the term itself, Cold War. Why was it that the USSR, whatever its repressive political apparatus was, and I was as critical of that as anybody from the left, actually, I should say, um, but nonetheless, the Soviet Union had a kind of appeal. You know, I think we've got to understand that. You know, I mean, this kind of image of totalitarianism and labor camps may be all true, less true after Stalin's death, but it appealed in the third world. And Nehru, after all, uh, the first great leader of India, you know, had a huge admiration for Soviet planning. And, and when he went to the Soviet Union, he was fated. And when the Soviet leadership went to India, and it wasn't a communist country, obviously, although it was pursuing socialism, huge sort of symbolic and, and a genuine feeling of solidarity. The other thing, of course, is, and you, you implied this, in a world which seemed to be dominated by the United States, for good or ill, and I'll, I'll, I'll leave judgment on that to one side for the moment, I think it's a balanced assessment we need to arrive at on that. Nonetheless, it was better to have a world in which there was a balance in the international system than no balance. And even my dear subject called international relations, IR, uh, not, you know, there, were, there were theorists in IR like uh, Ken Waltz and a number of others who kind of said, well, it's better to have a balance of power in the international system than to have no balance. And if the balance happens to be provided by the Soviet bloc, well, all, all well and good. And, you know, he wrote this famous article in 64 on the stability of the Cold, right. Cold War. So I think this notion that you needed balance in the international system was another factor, which I think even if people didn't want to apologize for everything going on inside the Soviet Union, they didn't, nonetheless could see you're better having that than yep. not having that. And when you lose that, as you do in 89 and 1991, the world goes out of balance with all sorts of potentially dangerous consequences, one of which may have indeed been the Iraq War. Um, let me just move on, though, quickly, Arnie, on to the question of prediction. I know you're an historian, therefore you're going to tell me the usual boring historian's answer. We don't do prediction. Uh, we don't do you, no, Okay, fine. You, you, well done. I, I've already answered my own question. But it, it, the question is not why don't we do predictions. The question is why do we get it so damned wrong in 89? I mean, I don't care. You can't predict the world, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but you thought we might have been closer, approximately, you know, within at least 100 miles of getting 1989 right. It seemed that all of our theories of the world seemed to point in quite the opposite direction. So it's not the silly question of why didn't you predict it? Mm. Well, of course I did. Uh, <laughs> um, but why were we so far away, do you think? In it? Or were we? Maybe you, you've got a different take on that. 
So as an historian, of course, I'm interested in the study of predictions. Ah, uh, clever. I'm interested clever in how people, clever answer, how people you know. make their predictions. That's why he's at Harvard, you know. Uh, yeah. I've, uh, <laughs> well, I wish more people at Harvard had taken an interest <laughs> in this particular thought of what I do. Uh -huh. <laughs> but, you know, so, um, and, and there are quite a few people these days who are, who are preoccupied with what you could call histories of the future or of futures that never really quite happened, right? So one of these futures was, of course, the prediction that the Cold War was an entirely stable international system that would more or less last forever, mm. right? Um, and nuclear weapons, of course, played a very important part in all of this. You couldn't figure change into it mm. because nuclear weapons were going to prevent that change. Now, that turned out to be entirely wrong. And I think it turned out to be entirely wrong as a prediction for, for two main reasons. And one has to do with the Soviet Union, to, to come back to that. That in the Soviet Union, there was room uh, for the creation of a new kind of mindset among some of the people who were in charge, not all of them, but enough people that, that uh, Gorbachev was able to stay in power for as long as he did, and eventually to, to uh, deconstruct the Cold War uh, as an international system. Very few of us, including myself, had expected that to be the case, that there was that potential, that Soviet uh, socialism, that communism, could for long enough, among some of its leaders, hop back to a European Enlightenment tradition that Marxism and communism, after all, came out of, to say that we've had enough of this. We've had enough of repression. We've had enough of people being put in prison for their beliefs or, or their religious convictions. We want to move to a different stage, right? And then, of course, coming up, as we may want to discuss, mm. against the problem that it was very difficult, if not impossible, to change the Stalinist system in a direction that made the Soviet Union into a viable state. Mm. But that was the first thing, I think, that we had missed. And the second part that we had missed is, in a way, systemic. And this is something that I've been trying to think about in terms of other bipolar systems that we have had throughout history, and there are not many of them. Bipolarity as a kind of international system mm. is actually quite rare. Unipolarity or forms of multipolarity are much more prevalent, much more, uh, much more common. So in this case, I think it had a lot to do with a sense that developed gradually from the 1970s on that the world was moving in one direction in terms of its economic form of existence. Now, one has to be careful with this, because I don't necessarily think, if one operates in those categories, as Mickey indicated earlier mm. on, of true and untrue, that that was necessarily true. But there was a very strong, almost globally existent idea in the 1980s that the world was moving towards the globalization of markets the internationalization, if not globalization, of finance capital, a new kind of international system on, on which today's concepts of globalization were actually built. The idea that, as we used to say back then, there was no alternative. Tina, <laughs> right? Tina, yeah. Now, that was a picture of a particular time, of a particular age. But when that happened, is crucially important for understanding how the Cold War came to an end. I remember myself going to Moscow in the early 1990s, being explained 
to by, by former communist apparatchiks that there was no other way of reforming the Soviet and now Russian economy than going through the most extreme measures <laughs> of free market capital liberalization forms of reform. Right? <laughs> now today this looks ridiculous and I think it was ridiculous. <laughs> But from a 1980s perspective, it wasn't all that ridiculous because that particular form of neoliberalism had become the hegemonic ideology, if you like. Mm, mm. Not just in Washington or in London, but also to a very high extent in Beijing first and then in Eastern Europe. Mm, mm. Okay, I'm going to ask one final set of questions, then we're going to throw it open, Arnie. Um, in 89, 1990, 1991, the United States claimed, and people like Francis Fukuyama, claimed it was the end of history, um, etc. Uh, and the United States had won the Cold War. I mean, looked at 20 years on, it, it looks more like China <laughs> won the Cold War. And indeed, I think when we think of 1989 in terms of perspective, you know, that famous day, 4, 4 June, remember, 4 June 1989, you're bound to because you've written the damn book on it. Um, Pol Poland was holding reasonably free and fair elections, which brought Solidarność effectively closer and closer to power. And on that same day, the tanks rolled across Tiananmen Square. And I just wondered, kind of taking a longer-term reflection, and I won't ask you to say, do you think what the Chinese authorities did was right or wrong? I think that's an unfair and an ahistorical question. But nonetheless, if we kind of take ourselves on 20 years... All, all, all the moral angst about what China did in 89, I mean, if one looks at it from the point of view of history, it looks as if China may have got something right in 89. It then, because of the end of the Cold War and globalization, mm. of which China has taken enormous advantage and seems to understand 20 times better than President Trump, you know, and actually thinks it's quite a good thing for China while Trump's retreating from it, seems to be retreating from it. And I just wonder if the great paradox of the end of the Cold War was that in the end the ultimate victim will, will effectively be China. It removed the Soviet Union as a potential rival. It allowed it to participate in a new globalizing e e economy. And it, and it permitted for, further, further, further economic reforms uh, which had begun in 78. And we'll end on that as a, as a last question, because that brings us right up to well, about the power shift issue as well. It reminds me of how much I've been missing my old mate here uh, <laughs> in terms of asking the kinds of questions that need to be asked. Now, I was in, I was in China in, in the summer of 1989, which was uh, somewhat paradoxical because I was seeing all of these changes starting to happen in Western Europe, in the continent that I, I, I was born and grew up. Mm. Uh, but from the perspective of, of changes that I thought would be not of a similar scale, but of probably of similar significance, taking place in China. Now, I wasn't surprised about the crackdown on the 4th of June, mm. but I was surprised by what happened afterwards. Mm. Right? Uh, I was surprised that the Chinese Communist Party was able to make a comeback in a very different guise, be it, um, from what it had prior to, to June of 1989, and indeed that it is still around. Um, and of course, there was a great deal of learning that was built into this. Now, this, this doesn't remove any of my political or moral judgment about the killing of students and others that took place in Beijing and elsewhere in China in, in June of 1989. Uh, but it does show, I think, two things that are important in this context. Now, the first one, again going back to your question, is that 
China was indeed the main beneficiary of how the Cold War ended. It wasn't the beneficiary of the whole Cold War. So, I mean, the, the, the terrible, absolutely horrible times that Chinese went through in the 1950s and the, the late 1950s and the 1960s during the Great Leap Forward and during the so-called Great Proletarian Cultural Revolution were awful. And they were created because of the kind of Cold War dichotomies that Chinese leadership believed in at the time. Mm -hmm. But in terms of being able to work after the mid-1970s with the United States because of the opposition to the Soviet Union mm -hmm. that the Chinese leadership had mm -hmm. developed, mm -hmm. they were able to create a kind of opportunity for China in joining a global capitalist-led international system that privileged them over the people in Moscow who never wanted to join a system of that sort, mm -hmm. right? I, and you don't have to be a you know, historical genius to understand how that placed China when the Cold War then came to an end. Mm. Uh, they had the productive power, they had the capacity in terms of their domestic reform, and they had the ability to work with the United States that actually privileged them uh, internationally. Now, where this is going to end up is, of course, the part of history, history <laughs> of the future, that we still do not know enough about. It's clearly not in China's interest to have the kind of unipolar movement that you had in the 1990s and the early 2000s. I think China in many ways would have been much better off in terms of its international affairs with a more balanced international system that is there. But I would still not go as far as saying that that means that bipolarity is inherently good. I think some kind of balance in international affairs maybe more towards, as our colleague Barry Busan has been indicating, you know, some kind of, 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 of multipolarity that comes out of different kinds of regional systems might be a more beneficial and probably also a more likely uh, development for, for, for the future. What I do know is that the kind of unipolarity that the United States tried to impose on the world after the Cold War ended really did not work out very well for anyone. Mm. I, and on that I would even, I would even include China. Mm. Because it put China in a position in terms of its international affairs where the, all of the measure that it had was up against the United States. And it made a number of people in China believe, including some very sensible people who mm. I work with very often, mm. that the future would indeed be a kind of return to bipolarity, with China being the one pole and the United States the other pole. Mm. Which I don't think, if you're in Beijing or Hangzhou or Sichuan or wherever, is the kind of future that you should wish for. Mm. Because mm. Not not only is it not good for the world as a whole, but it's not good for China. Mm -hmm. I was going to ask you one final question on Russia, but we'll leave that because if you would have made a prediction, anyway, I made a prediction in 1991, which would say if you kind of take Russia on one side and put China there, okay, China's bigger and a lot more people, etc. Um, and there's Russia, but if you'd made a prediction in 1991, in 20 years' time, who's going to be doing pretty well? I think a lot of people may have said Russia. Yeah. And they may have said, well, China may be. We'll have to wait and see. So there's an interesting way in which Russia's evolved. And that brings us on to a larger question about where we are today and whether, to use that famous term, whether in the middle of a new Cold War about which you will write volume two, <laughs> a, 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 a future history. Anyway, I've been asking a lot of questions. I hope that made some sense to you. And I hope that engaged you more than just listening to me or indeed, more importantly, listening to Arnie. What I'm going to do now is just open up for, for questions and, we'll, and Arnie will try and provide as many answers as possible. We've got one over here. We've got a uh, yeah, but person over here has got a very tall hand. <laughs> oh, God, that's, that's the longest arm in LSE. One there. And who was over here? There was somebody over here. 
No, take somebody on the side there. No, no, it's too difficult. Uh, yeah, take, take you first. Yeah, please. Yeah. Hi. Yeah. Oh, me. Sorry. Yeah, um, that's you, yeah. Hi, I'm Scott. I'm uh, currently a Chinese language student. Um, when I did my master's, I did it on uh, do, do nuclear states go to war or do they use crises and other tools to try and influence each other's behavior? And it feels to me like the lesson from the Cold War and the lesson post-Cold War is that nuclear states don't go to war with each other. Um, and while nuclear weapons and arguably similar conventional weapons are important, which tool should strategists think about now as the main tool that could influence their adversaries? And I'm thinking of soft power, economic statecraft, espionage, or potentially another tool I haven't considered. And if you were to recommend to a policymaker which of those tools to focus on the most to influence uh, states in this day and age, which would it be and why? Come over here. Good. That's a good question. Yeah, I'm going to take a couple, actually. If you, no, don't come up to me. I don't need it. Come over to this gentleman over here. That's right. Just watch, yeah, the back watch my eyes. Yeah, take the gentleman here. Yeah, Just oh, yeah. God, there's too many. Oh, God, LSE's got three microphones. Excellent. Yeah, please. Thank, thank you very much. Um, do you believe there was some inevitability about, the expand, about NATO expanding after 1991? I can't help feel from the Russian point of view, to put it mildly, mm. that was very tactless. Yeah. Tactless, okay. Was NATO tactless in enlarging Do you want itself? to take another one? Uh, take one more. Any more to go? You've Any got more? some ups. Uh, yeah, take gentleman in the middle there. He's very urgent. Yeah. <laughs> gentleman there, I know him well. I've got a question. The genesis of the Cold War uh, after the defeat of fascism, it's often, because we rushed into that war, we tend to, I mean, in America and the Soviet all both needed to defeat fascism. And the dichotomy, the losses, uh, the Americans steal 400,000. I think the Soviet Union lost 20 million. We tended to underestimate the tremendous loss of life and damage to their property they experienced. And I think both, all, all countries, the British colonized, and all needed to defeat that. And I just want to ask whether yeah. the, um, the, the lack of sympathy for that loss might have had something to do with the Cold War. Sure. I think it's a great question. Professor actually. Cox, we have some up there on the balcony as well. Oh, yeah, good. You, well, who, well, you find them and uh, we'll answer the questions. Do, do, I, do, uh, one, first do one more, okay? Do one more, yeah. Hi. First of all, thank you, Mick. Uh, I think no one beats you when it comes to chairing academic sessions. I, 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 I agree uh, entirely. I agree entirely with that. Terrific. Terrific point. Uh, you don't have and, to ask uh, the question. question from... A question from Arnie. If you uh, had to name a country that had a massive influence on the Cold War, but that influence had been massively underappreciated, what would that country be? Uh. Obviously, Ireland. No, uh. yeah, no. <laughs> Goes without saying. Yeah, Arnie, I, I think there's a few right. there from nuclear war states, inevitability in NATO. Did we underestimate Soviet losses? Loss of losses. Well, I yeah. think we did, actually, to be honest. And, and which one would have the biggest It was the underappreciated. Yeah. Okay, let me deal with them um, as they came up. So on the first one, what is it today that is the currency of international affairs? And I think, I mean, you've probably seen the same thing here at LSE, but if you, if you sit in at any of my, my seminars at Harvard, and ask the students about what they think is the currency of international affairs, there is absolutely no doubt. It is the economy. It's the economic relationships uh, among parts of the world, among uh, great powers. Uh, it is who will actually win out in terms of the economic stakes of the, of the future. Uh, now, one has to be careful here because 
sometimes that argument is put forward to reduce two other parts of power. So one is hard power in the traditional sense, right? The nuclear weapons being one of them, but also other kinds of, mm. of, of military or coercive power. And the other one would be soft power in its various incarnations, as my, as my now colleague uh, Joseph Knight came up with the concept. So I think one has to be careful in thinking about power as being, being unidimensional. It isn't. It is very much multidimensional uh, in its various forms. But where I would agree is that in terms of the direction that the world seems to be taking, it is quite clear that for the next half generation, unless there is an absolute cataclysmic crisis which belongs to the security aspect of things rather than the economic aspects of things. It is economics that is going to be in the driver's seat in terms of how international affairs are being developed. NATO expansion. So I think NATO expansion is one of the most difficult issues to deal with in terms of the, po the immediate post-Cold War. Again, because it has different kinds of backgrounds. So my own take on this is that what was wrong in the 1990s, first and foremost from a European perspective actually, much more than from an American perspective, was the failure to integrate Russia in some meaningful kind of way into a larger European project. It was not the expansion of security arrangements or uh, economic and social arrangements through the EU towards the East, right? I think there were many different ways in which these processes could have been handled. And we handled many of them wrong. First and foremost, because they were seen as being finite in a way. They were, they were set up in a way that defined in a narrow sense what Europe was and what Europe wasn't. I mean, think about the Balkans in the same, in the same context. You know, uh, so I think this is the big problem that will be there for historians today and future historians of looking at the 1990s and the early 2000s. Why on earth were we not more preoccupied with trying to find meaningful ways not of excluding Russia but of integrating Russia when we were given the best opportunity for doing so that we had probably in a hundred years. Right? Mm -hmm. So that doesn't excuse Putin. That doesn't excuse anything that is happening in Russia today. It doesn't even exclude the massive mistakes that Russians themselves were able to make uh, in making a mess of their country in the 1990s, right? But I think it has a significance in terms of understanding, again, thinking about the future, how best to integrate. I mean, how to create a new kind of world that comes out of a collapsed uh, international system of the past. Loss of life in the USSR. So, I mean, that in a, is in a way connected. I mean, I think, look, I mean, when you look at the outcome of the Second World War, in the perspective of what happened in, in the Soviet Union. Two things come to mind at the same time. One is, of course, the terrible losses that were taken there in fighting against Nazi Germany, uh, and you know, which couldn't be written off because they influenced the whole Russian generation. If you listen to any of the Soviet leaders in the post-war era who actually experienced that war, there is one thing that they are absolutely convinced about. Whatever their ideology is, war is a terrible thing. War should not be allowed to happen again unless it is absolutely, absolutely necessary. So that's one side of it. 
But the other side of it is, of course, that the Stalinist system that had been created mm. in the Soviet Union mm. was set up in a way that neglected both in personal terms, I mean, in terms of the sacrifices that these people have been, carry, been carrying out, but also in terms of the kind of new form of state that would actually serve its people better after the great victory in 1945 that could have been created as a result of the victory against fascism in Europe. Uh, that was a kind of uh, transition, transformation, that the Soviet system simply was not able to deliver. And that is not the case because of the confrontation they came into with Western Europe and with the United States. It was because of the deficiencies, in my view, that were built into the Stalinist system itself. And then, finally, which other country uh, had a massive influence? I write a great deal about this in the book, so again, a reason to pick the book. Norway. Norway? Unfortunately, now, Norway <laughs> thinks of itself, of course, as a moral superpower. Absolutely. <laughs> um, Isn't it? Gosh. Okay. It has the biggest sovereign wealth fund in the world. Uh, <laughs> That's one, of, one of the reasons I don't worry too much about my pension. <laughs> um, now, when you look at this, and this is a point that I do make in, 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 in the book, the Cold War wildcard, if you could call it that, on a, in, a, in a global setting is, of course, India. I mean, India is the country that is most neglected in terms of the study of the Cold War, and the one that probably had the greatest significance for two reasons, and you alluded to one of them already. Mm. I mean, one is in terms of the decisions that had to be made in the 1950s in terms of India's future, right? Mm. So the reason why India embraced planning to the degree that it did was not just about the immediate history and the background of the Indian National Congress. It also had to do with these people looking at the world the way it was at that point and figuring out that the Soviet Union actually worked. So I used to think, before I turned to the Indian archives, where I spent quite a bit of time in, in working on this book, mm. that Indian socialism was more Lusky than Lenin, right? <laughs> it was more LSE than the Soviet Union. Mm, definitely. I don't think that's true anymore. Mm -hmm. I think India, to a very high extent, copied some of the experiences coming out of the Soviet Union. Not all of them, mm. but some of them in a, in, a, in, a, in a very significant way. And then secondly, of course, there is the impact of India's role with regard to the non-aligned movement. Mm. What Nehru and his successors wanted to project was a world that was not dependent just on superpowers. That a world could exist, that could move through the power of countries like India and other newly decolonized countries towards a greater degree of multipolarity and through that a greater degree of cooperation. Now, the Cold War international system turned out to make that very, very difficult, if not impossible. But that's not the reason to neglect it when you're writing a history of this period. So bringing India back into this is something that I'm very preoccupied with in the book. On, uh, you mentioned Harold Lasky here uh, in that context, one of the great figures of the school in the interwar period until he died in 1950, and one, you know, one of the great radicals of this school and, and the, one of the most popular lecturers, especially popular, by the way, with Indian students. Indeed. Uh, when, when he was uh, lecturing, uh, and for good and for good and, and legitimate reasons, later on, um, uh, uh, an American studied here called Patrick Moynihan, 
who went on to become Senator Moynihan. And he wrote an extraordinary article in 75 in a, a journal called Commentary, where he actually blamed the LSE completely <laughs> for all the troubles in the third world. And you know, he said, when I go to the UN, yes. it's not the Soviet Stalinist I confront. It's all these damn Laskiites who studied at the LSE. I don't know who they're studying he, with. He, he might have been right. He may, he may well have been right. Lasky was never wrong, of course. <laughs> Once or twice he got it wrong. Anyway, let's have some more questions from up there. I don't want to discriminate against people at the top of the... Yeah, lady there in the middle. Yeah, and there's somebody over here. Oh, oh you're hiding behind that pole. Where, any over here? Somebody over there. Take one over here. Take this person here. Hey. Oh, I don't know. Take two there. Take those two. Yep. I have actually uh, two questions uh, at the beginning. No, you can of have the... one question. Okay, <laughs> connected. So the beginning yeah, of the, the Cold one. War, can we say that the beginning of Cold War was in the Yota conference when uh, Churchill, Roosevelt and Stalin agreed uh, in regard to the Eastern European countries to take over? And uh, what about the role of the Vatican and especially John Paul II in bringing right. down the, um, the communists in Eastern Europe? Okay, did the Pope start the Cold War? And, oh, um, did he end the Cold War? Oh, did he end the Cold War? Yes, indeed. My Polish students all think that he, he ended the Cold War. And, uh, and Yalta and, and, yeah. and the issues there. There was another question over here. Who, who was it? I can't remember. Yeah, I'm trying to do my thing. Yeah, please. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, in terms of the peace, uh, that, or, or rather the fact that the Cold War never spilled over, is there a sort of simple explanation regarding nukes that rather than sending a load of 19-year-old boys to get blown to bits, the rulers would have been vaporised and blown to bits themselves. So there's a rational reason for self-interest and preservation not to go to war. Okay. Uh, by Joseph, the, by the leaders. Got, sorry, thanks very much. Joseph, you've got some questions there? From... Uh... Hello. Uh, yeah, so we have uh, questions from Twitter, from people who've been tweeting on the uh, hashtag. And appropriately, because you just mentioned India, we have a question here from Chennai. Someone who's tweeted in. Uh, so Morale asks, history is quite famously an excellent teacher. With prevailing global tensions today, shall we derive any specific lessons from the Cold War? Okay, that's an easy one to answer, Arnie. Yeah, very easy. It'll definitely. take a couple of weeks. Uh, and a lady down here, please. Yeah. Um, the Cold War um, is an international system between the capitalism and the, the socialism. Mm. Right. So the modern high policy say, um, economic growth and the middle income uh, should lead uh, the kind of authoritarian uh, country to become more democratic. Uh, this is the case in democratic uh, Taiwan, mm. but since it's not uh, the case in communist uh, China. Mm. So what do you um, understand in the context of the Cold War? Okay, let's, ta let's take all of those. Actually, I've got uh, one question from up here very quickly. Sorry, I've just right. ended up with a microphone. Oh, yeah, okay, go for uh, it. Yeah. I'll be quick. Um, do you think the impact of the space race has been greatly exaggerated? Sorry, could you repeat Do you think the impact of the space race has been greatly exaggerated, perhaps because America considers themselves the winners of it? Okay. Right, okay, there's about nine questions there, aren't you? Going? <laughs> it's more about, more like 20, I think. Yeah, well, uh, Anyway, I, I, so on the Yalta conference, I mean, I, I always think that in reflecting on history, you have to be very careful in finding one particular moment, you know, in w which, particularly through political action, creates a whole international system or a direction or a, a tendency that then comes to fill, at least for some purposes, the next 50 years. The Alta Conference was important, but it didn't create the Cold War, it didn't create the division of the world. The division of Europe 
was created by the military situation on the ground, which was there whether Yalta had happened or not. The advance of the Red Army, the Soviet Red Army, into the heart of, of Europe. The collapse of other states that could have challenged both the United States and the Soviet Union, first and foremost Germany. Um, but also on a global scale, I think one has to be careful with focusing too much just on the year 1945. Mm -hmm. I think in terms of what the future of the world looked like, and again, there is something in it for us today, I think. What really turns out, with hindsight, to have been the most significant period is, of course, 1941. It is when both the United States and the Soviet Union joins what was becoming a world war, which they were going to come out as the ultimate victors of. That wasn't given when you look at how the Second World War developed from 1939, right? So that kind of, I, I use the term contingency with some hesitation here because there are some systemic aspects of the entry of these two countries into the war as well that should not be neglected. But the idea that you necessarily developed right from the outset of the war in 1939 over onto the entry both of the Soviet Union and the United States, both of which, by the way, entered the Second World War because they were attacked mm. rather than a deliberate decision to enter. That is something to take into consideration, I think, in thinking about reconfiguration. On, on Yalta, on just as a point, yeah. I mean, I agree with you entirely. I think too much has been written about it and too much bad books have been written mm. about Yalta, what was actually done or not done there. You could say one of the most important things that came out of Yalta was Russia's decision, uh, agreement to come into the war against Japan. Yes. I think, that's, I think that's definitely true because it led to a, a reconfiguration of East Asia to a degree that a lot of people, a lot of historians as well, up to very recently have not really taken into consideration. I think uh, to Yoshi Hasegawa's book from now five, six years ago yeah, yeah, sure. about uh, how the Cold War ended in Asia is the first one that really yeah. situates how significant the Soviet entry and in the war And it takes Japan. the narrative away from Europe. Yes, as well, absolutely. Which anyway. is very important. Did the Pope, now on John did, Paul II. Yeah. <laughs> um, or, so his, or his predecessors. I would, well, let's, let's focus on, on, on John Paul II and the, end of the, the mm. end of the Cold War. So I did quite a bit of research on this as I was writing this book. And I think with regard to Poland, there is absolutely no doubt that the Pope had a, had a very significant impact in terms of how the relations between parts of the communist elite and parts of the non-communist resistance developed during the 1980s. I think one of the most meaningful moments to me in how the Cold War ended is when, when the, the Pope returns to Poland for the first time after his election. Mm. And he doesn't give sermons or addresses that encourage people to resist their communist masters. He, he concentrates his sermons about one specific point. Do not be afraid. And I think that message which was picked up not just among those who opposed the communist leadership, but also among some of the people within the Communist Party who thought that reform was necessary, is something that was really significant in terms of how the Cold War ended in Poland. Mm. Now, one should be careful with universalizing this, right? as one should with anyone who is outside of the normal constellations of, of, of influence in political terms. But that that played a role in Poland and through that, through, throughout Eastern Europe, of, of that I have no doubt. Self-interest in, in not going to war. So I think one of the aspects of the end of the Cold War, especially in Europe, 
that I wanted to look at and got a great deal out of uh, researching is the resistance against the intensification of the Cold War and particularly the introduction of new weapons, East and West, during the 1980s. And I must confess that that was one of the things that surprised me the most when I looked at this, the mm -hmm. impact that the anti-nuclear movements had not on everything that was happening East and West, but how they became a voice that had to be reckoned with, mm -hmm. even for people who abhorred, really abhorred what these anti-nuclear, anti-militarist uh, movements stood for. Um, and that has struck me, I mean, particularly the activism of young people uh, during the early and mid-1980s had a definite impact right into the halls of the Kremlin, right into the reasons why Mikhail Gorbachev was elected. Uh, as, as leader of the Soviet Communist Party, that they thought he belonged to a younger generation that had more of a chance of communicating uh, with people, uh, with a generation that had a different experience in terms of international affairs. Lessons from the Cold War. So, as I said to begin with, and Mick indicated this too, I think one has to be very careful with believing that there are only one set of lessons that can be drawn from the past. Every woman, every man have their own past, have their own understanding of, of, of what the past was like through personal experience or through experience that they have learned about through their families or through their teachers or through their reading or, or, or whatever. And there are different lessons coming out of this. I'm not uh, privileged in any way to say that there was one big lesson. But towards the end of the book, I'm preoccupied with a set of issues that sort of bridges the Cold War with what we see today. And I alluded to these at the beginning of my remarks. And one of the most important ones, I think, is that it's very hard to end a confrontational international system like what the Cold War was without meaningful negotiations. Now, you can do a lot of other things. So I'm not a, you know, I'm not a pacifist. I'm not someone who, who believes that necessarily all solutions to human ills comes to everyone sitting down around the table and talking together. You know, in the 1930s, I think dealing with fascism in Europe, dealing with militarism in Japan would have been very difficult without confronting it with military power. But I do think that in terms of how the Cold War ended, I mean, the abilities of people of very different mindsets, Gorbachev, Reagan, people who worked with them, to actually look at what the specific issues were and trying to deal with those issues, rather than saying, from an ideological point of view, I'm entirely against what you stand for. That's perhaps one of the biggest lessons to come out of the Cold War in terms of how conflict ends, at least, at least for me. More democratic through markets. I've never believed in that. I don't believe in it today. I think it is perfectly possible to have authoritarian regimes, uh, even strong authoritarian regimes, that integrate a high degree of market practice into what they do. So China today, which is an authoritarian state, in a one-party one dictatorship, is uh, probably more oriented towards the market in many ways than what Britain is, right? Certainly than what Norway is. Um, but that doesn't get in the way of the kind of political uh, shape that is there. Now, I'm not saying this to denigrate in any way the transformations that have taken place in China alongside the opening up in terms of uh, economic activities. They have been important. They're very important for what China looks like today. China is by far a freer, 
opener society because of some of those reforms. But does it necessarily produce democracy? Of that, I'm, I'm most, much less certain. Um, and then I've forgotten what the last question was. What was the last question? That was a difficult one you can't answer. <laughs> Did it have anything to do with Arsenal? No, 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 no. What oh, was the that? space race. Oh, the, the space, space race, race. yeah. Um, so <laughs> I think this, the, the, the space race in itself was very much a product of the Cold War. I mean, the, the way one talked about it, the kind of aims that were there for uh, putting the first man on the moon, uh, for developing the kinds of rockets that were necessary, the kind of, of, um, of uh, delivery vehicles, if you like, for space exploration, which of course went the long way much of the missile technology that was necessary in order to create intercontinental ballistic missiles for, for war purposes on, on Earth, as it were. But that said, I don't think the space race in itself came to have a very strong impact on the Cold War. I think uh, after it became clear in one of the biggest successes, often unheralded actually in, in our accounts of the Cold War, that the stationing of actual weapons was not going to spread to space through negotiated efforts in which a lot of different countries played a very significant role. I think much of the emphasis on the space race as driving the Cold War was out. So again, I mean, the, the answer is in a way in two parts. Mm. Was the space race, as we know it, created by the Cold War? Absolutely. Did the space race become what many people in the 1950s and early 60s had foreseen, the future of Cold War competition? Probably not. But I'm old enough, aren't I, to remember Sputnik. Indeed. And I've got a Yuri Gagarin watch. Leica. Leica and Yuri was one of my great heroes, and I can remember the impact that so-called technologically backward Soviet Union couldn't do it, and then suddenly they put Sputnik up Absolutely. there, beeping around the Earth, Absolutely. and then Yuri goes up, and the Americans got absolutely frightened out of their pants Absolutely. and had an enormous impact on, the, that, on the American economy, maybe some good things as well as bad. And that is, that's what created, in many ways, yeah. the space race. Of course, there wasn't a space exactly. race yeah. when the United States was the only power that seemed to be operating in space. Mm. It was true the element of Cold War competition. Sure, that yeah, is what's yeah, yeah. Now, I've got two final questions. It'll have to be two, sorry. There's, there's somebody here, and there's somebody up there, and that'll have to be the two. And I'm sorry, I've done my best. Channel. So, uh, what, if any, aspect or analysis of the Cold War did the two of you profoundly disagree on? Ah, that's a good question, Etienne. Uh, nothing at all, nothing at all. <laughs> Talk to you afterwards. Uh, uh, up there, please, yeah. Um, what do you see... What do you see as um, a carryover or the impact of media mm. from the Cold War and um, its potential influence today? Yeah, good. Okay, we'll, we'll end with those. Arnie, what do we disagree on? What do we disagree on? I'm, uh, I'm right most of the time. Yeah, <laughs> I'm right slightly less than half of the time. <laughs> well, I meant 45 signal Signal seniority, I guess, in, 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 this, <laughs> in this relationship. I guess... There isn't much, actually, but uh, the, the, the one thing that we spent a lot of time discussing mm. back when we were setting up the, um, the Cold War Study Center mm. had to do with the uh, impact mm. of the United States on a global scale. And I think 
at least back then, probably less so now, but I, I think Mick focuses much more clearly on the United States and its rise mm. as a global power mm. Mm. Um, than what I do in, in much of my own research. That's not necessarily a disagreement, but it's a difference of emphasis. Yeah. And it's actually a very important difference of emphasis, I think, in terms of how research on the Cold War is being carried out today. But we can yeah. talk more about that. So um, the impact of medium. Now, again, in many ways, in terms of the Cold War, this is, this is dual. This, this, this is not sort of unidimensional, in a way. So one of the best things about the Cold War, in, in terms of Western Europe uh, and the United States, was that because of this very strong ideologically minded set of leaders that existed at the time, media, when they were at their best, were willing and able to ask very critical questions that went beyond the kind of framework of thinking that existed among the leadership. Uh, I was quite impressed with that when I was researching this book. And the reason why I was so impressed by it was that I find so little of it today. Mm, mm. Right? I mean, I think media were, on a whole, not everywhere, but on a whole, were much better in their, in their job in, in countries where it was possible to, to carry out investigations and ask critical questions than what they are in the post-Cold post mm. War era. So that's mm. the first one. And then, secondly, of course, there is the opposite aspect of it. Uh, just like today, media can be very easily manipulated for political purposes. And I think during the 1980s, during the time when the Cold War came to an end, this was, this was particularly visible because we now have the documents to prove it, right? How uh, uh, intelligence organizations, East and West, focused in on public opinion, because I think they understood it better, and then tried to, fo to shape it, tried to, to mold it, Sometimes with great success and other times with less, with less success. Uh, and the point there is, of course, that media organizations themselves, if we think about today, have to be more aware about how that kind of influence uh, is actually carried out, how it happens. Because it's not just in one, in one setting. It's not just journalists being paid off by the CIA or the KGB or, or, or whoever to write the kind of stories that these people like. It's through various forms of information or disinformation that takes place, that originates outside of the, the, the public realm itself that journalists link up to. Very relevant, of course, for the kinds of situations that we see today, particularly in the United States. Okay, I'm going to try. I have to draw uh, the proceedings to a conclusion, unfortunately.